This podcast is a presentation of Faith Assembly of God, where our mission is to connect people with Christ and to experience life. Get more information online at faithishere.org and join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 11 a.m. Thank you for making this podcast a part of your week. And uh, somehow when I stand in American churches, I have this sense that I should start by telling a joke. It's sort of what we're noted for, you know. The, if you ever go to an African church, African churches, they talk to you, man. They don't tell jokes. They say, praise the Lord. You say, praise the Lord. You say, hallelujah. They say, hallelujah. They say, God is good. You say, all the time. They say, all the time. You say, God is good. That's, that's how you start. Latin American churches, they begin by shouting, just, just praising God. They're just hot from the get-go. German churches, they just kind of stare at you and decide whether they're going to go with you or not. Swedish guys, they like to sing. They love the Swedish hymns, those Swedish brass bands. They always start like that. So somehow I feel like I do a joke. I'm not going to, but I have that feeling when I'm in American churches. It is great to be here, and uh, for a lot of reasons it's great. It's great to be with Larry. He mentioned we go back all the way to our Bible school days. We were preparing for ministry together. There was no doubt that Larry was going to make it. There was serious questions about me, but in the end it worked out. Uh, Larry was diligent student, always, and I'd go down to his apartment to study, and I'm so tired, I said, Larry, I think I got it. He goes, no, you don't got it, Terry, you don't have it. So Larry would get the good grades, and I kind of made, made the curve work for the rest of the class. <laughs> well, I figure, you know, it was, it was back in the 70s, it was a bell curve. You miss seven on the test, you get a C plus. You miss 37, you get a C minus. So I thought, well, there's no chance I'm going to miss six. So I'm going to go with the C, C plus, C minus, it's all the same. So it's great to see Larry and be with him. Though we're separated by distance, we stay in touch well, I think, and uh, would love to do even better. But it's been nice to be with Larry and to watch the development of this church and to be with him through all the journey of his life. And it's been a, a wonderful thing, some good times and some not so good times, but we've shared those times together and it's nice to be here. It's nice to be back among friends. And some of you I know by name. It's good to see you again. Some names I have very present and some names I'm going to look and say, yeah, 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 help me just a little bit. But uh, it's great to be back among friends. We've been in missions 25 years. And when you're in missions 25 years, you do not struggle to remember the names of the churches that stay with you faithfully year after year after year after year. And this is that kind of church. I can't tell you how many times your names come into our prayers. We, we pray for our supporters every month. We stay in touch with God about you and about the needs. And it's, it's never, there's not a lot of distance. I, I know this church and I know, I know this, this, this ministry well. And we try to stay connected because you guys have been amazing partners for, tw- for probably close to 25 years. Probably from the very beginning you started with us. At least very near the beginning. So that's a wonderful thing. And thank you for staying with us. And it's also great to be here because this is a life-giving church. It just feels good to be in church, doesn't it? I love coming to churches where I can sing as loud as I want in my crummy voice and no one notices. I love that. I sound better with backup singers. I don't know about you, but I sound better with backup singers. So I love it. It's a life-giving church, and I love being here because of that as well. I do bring you greetings from my wife, Ruth Ann. And if you know Ruth Ann, then you know she's the far better-looking part of our, of our couple, of our family. And uh, she regrets not being here. Ruthann is the oldest in her family, has a younger brother, a younger sister, and both of them somehow got juvenile diabetes. So they've struggled with diabetes since they were 12, both of them. And her brother is now 55, and the diabetes over all these years has just taken a horrific toll 
on Phil. So he's done the transplant four or five years ago, the kidney transplant, and he has just been in a real medical crisis for the last three or four months now in the hospital for two of those months. So then felt like when we got a little bit of time to come home that she needed to be there to be with Phil. And her mom and dad are in their 80s, so they can't do much. Lisa, her sister, has her own struggle with diabetes, so it's kind of it's Ruth Ann who needs to come through for the family. So I'm sorry she's not here. My wife's of Italian descent, and we have been married 36 years. Now, I tell people all the time, being married 36 years is a real joy. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing in these days, except that my wife's Italian, so it loses some of its luster because Italian wives do not believe in divorce. Now, they do believe in murder. So it's, it's special, but somehow, you know what I'm saying, not, not that special. So I bring you greetings from her. I also want to tell you, just bring you greetings from the churches Larry mentioned in, in Europe. Uh, we began planning what was in those days the first international Pentecostal church in the city of Rome. There was no other church preaching the Pentecostal message until we started. We stayed in that church 10 years. It grew to be a church of about 500 uh, in that church, we, we started 15 other churches, mainly with African and Filipino leaders that we trained. Uh, the Filipino network, now there's 27 Filipino churches all over Italy. There's also a network of Filipino churches called Euronet, and they gather about 500 Filipinos, Christian workers and pastors serving and doing ministry in Europe. All that grew out of the church in Rome. It was a wonderful time there. Then we went to Brussels, and in Brussels, we took over this existing church, and uh, had a lot of fun there. We transitioned that church to be even more international. Some of you remember those stories. We put in translation booths. So on Sunday mornings, I could speak in English and we could do seven other languages through headsets. So when I looked up at the translation booth on the wall, I had Dimitri and he had the Russian. Next to him, I had Kaliva, who had the Arabic. Next to him, I had Hussein, who had the Farsi. Next to him, I had a young guy named Jonathan, who had the Albanian. Next to him, next to him I had a lady named Jennifer, who did the French. And next to him, I had a, a guy named Albert, who did the Flemish. And so I would preach along, and they would do their best to keep up with me, uh, translating, and people would put on headsets, tune into the language they needed. It's a wonderful thing to watch that happen. Uh, I could say something funny and my English speakers would laugh instantly. <laughs> then there's like a five-second delay and the people with the headsets, they start laughing. Sometimes they didn't laugh. I thought, oh, well, it must not be funny in Russian and I didn't worry about it. But uh, that was fun and uh, that church continues to do well. Then in 2004, we noticed that there were these churches, these international churches starting. All of them started in the time that we have been in Europe. And, uh, and they weren't connected or related, so we had a real burden because international ministry is so special. You know, in Europe now, they're being inundated, like America, with immigration. Besides the movement of people from the outside, we also have massive movements inside Europe. You know that. In the last eight years or so, the barriers, the borders between countries are down, and we travel from nation to nation. And so a guy in the Czech Republic gets a job in Brussels, and even though... He's still in Europe. He feels like he's living the international experience. So there's a lot of demands and a lot of things have to change and ministry has to shift. And so we thought, let's gather these churches and try to mentor these young leaders and coach them along. So we started that in 2004 and now we have 41 churches in the network from 23 different European countries. Yeah. And this year... 
We're planning a church in Helsinki, Finland, Stockholm, Sweden, Paris, France, and Florence, Italy. Those four churches are going right now. We expect to start in Milano and Bratislava in 2011. So thank God for new churches and all that God is doing there. So it's just a lot of fun to be there and be a part of that. Another thing has happened to me since I saw you last is I became a first-time grandfather. Now, I know you who are grandparents for a long time, that's no big deal. But in my world, it was a big deal. My youngest daughter made me a grandpa, and she, didn't, she was surprised she got pregnant. I'm so excited, so I'm calling. So we kind of get the news little by little. And then I remember when I made the call, and she said to me in Italian, Papa, ci sono due. She found out she was having twins. So I got identical twin boys right off the bat. Isn't that fantastic? And their names are Caleb Andrew and, and, and Luke Isaac. I like that. New Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. They named them right. And I'm only telling you the story for two reasons. One, because those little, those little boys are two years old today. So I'm here preaching, and I had a big party with them on Friday night. I got them the Schwinn Roadster trike. I took real good care of them. So, uh, but the, the miracle of that story is this. Those little boys were born two years ago uh, today, but they were born at the end of the 28th week. So my little boys were in crisis from the very beginning. Caleb somehow was always strong, but little Luke had a big challenge. He had a brain bleed at birth. After the brain bleed, they found out that 41 centimeters of his upper intestines were dead, so they had to do a little surgery, take out those intestines, and then reattach them later. Last year when I was home, they found out that he, was, he had developed infant epilepsy to add to the trauma. And we have just been praying from, from day one about little Luke. And I'm just very happy to tell you that for a lot of reasons for which only God can get praise, little Lukey is strong and, and, and gaining ground and developing every single day. Thank God for that. And recently, recently they got their first haircut. So I'm going to show you a couple of photos. Just because I'm here and I only get one shot. There's, there's Caleb. Caleb's getting his first haircut. There he is. And here's the two boys together. And they're kind of at the end of it all saying how it went. And here's Caleb showing you his opinion of how it went. Thumbs up. We survived. Everything's okay. And uh, so I know some of you are aware of our little boys and their journey. Thank you for praying with us for them. That's the beauty about being friends for a long time. We, we celebrate and we rejoice together and we also carry each other through the tough times. Amen? And that's life, you know. And that's, it's nice to know that there are people though distant in some way, who have you in their hearts. And I know that many of you prayed for my little boys and for us, and thank you so much for doing that. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians chapter 4. I know that today is a a special day because you've made the decision to focus on missions. Now, I, I think that's the right thing to do for a lot of reasons, and I'll tell you just a couple as we start. One reason why it's important is because we know that as we advance in time and enter into that and press ever closer to that, that time that the Bible refers to as last days, the Bible says that in that period of time, two things are going to be very obvious. One is that sin will abound, but the corresponding reality is that grace will much more abound. So what that means in, when we, what that means is, as we look around our world and we see all these obvious signs, the evidence that sin is abounding, we need to be, of all people, attentive and announcing the fact that, hey, it's not just sin advancing, but it's grace abounding. And that message need not be lost. 
And there are some amazing grace opportunities out there. And those grace opportunities are very urgent. They're very pressing. They're very, they're very significant. And because there are grace opportunities abounding, we who are serious about missions need to engage our hearts over and over and over again. Another reason why we stay connected to missions is because we know that what Jesus said is eternally true. That on one hand, there will be a great harvest, but on the other hand, there will always be a shortage of workers. Harvest is great. Laborers are few. That means that for the laborers we have, wherever they might be serving, we want to empower the hands of the laborers. We don't want them to be caught short, lacking provision. And I can tell you about missionaries, yesterday's provision is never sufficient for today. Thank you for everything you gave me last year, but I am broke. Aren't you glad? I don't have a bank account. I don't have savings. Everything you gave me, I put into the harvest. I hope that's okay with you. I didn't save any of it. I spent it all. I invested it in the harvest. Because the reality is, workers are few. And I constantly see places and and situations and, and opportunities that need someone to step in. And so I know that this reality is not going to change. There'll always be a great harvest and there'll always be too few laborers. So I think we want to empower the hands of those who can serve. Do you agree? And the third thing is this. Doors open and doors close. And it happens so fast. Today's opportunities are not going to linger. Doors open and doors close. That means that we have to move rapidly and quickly and strategically through every door that opens. And to do that, brothers and sisters, we have not only got to be prayed up and spiritually ready, we have got to be financially prepared to move when the door door opens and take advantage of what God says before us. Can you say amen to that? So because those things are true, then our call to missions and missions engagement is not going to stop. And when we think about that, the reason you're in missions, the reason you're giving, the reason you're in the top 40 churches is because you believe it is in the heart of God for you to make a significant response to the need around you. And when you want to make a significant response, the thing that we have to do is submit ourselves constantly to moments of strategic renewal. If I want to be in my place and ready to serve, if I want to be in a place that I can make a significant response, that we as a church can can move when God says move and step when God says step, step, if that's going to happen, then we have to submit ourselves to these repetitive moments of strategic renewal when we say, God, I'm laying my life down again and asking you to get me ready. Now, when I look for an example of those who are really open and ready for strategic renewal, I think about the church in Ephesus. That's why I have you in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Ephesians is a very interesting book because it seems like there's these two very distinct messages, although Paul only has one point. If you read the first three chapters of Ephesians, all Paul does is spend three chapters speaking very elegantly and with great eloquence about all that the, the church and the believers in Ephesus had received in Christ Jesus. 
chapter 1, he makes this great, this great narrative about how we have been blessed with, so, with every kind of spiritual blessing. Chapter 2, he reminds him about how rich is the grace of God and how it's all because of him and nothing about what we do, but it's this gift of grace that we've received. Chapter 3, he talks about this incredible plan that God has for the Gentiles and all these things that God is going to do. And it's like Paul just has the, the audience sort of standing back going, wow, we, we have so much to be grateful for. We have received so much. He's just piling on the goodness, piling on the awareness. Do you know how much you've received? And then in chapter 4, he takes this erratic turn. And he stops talking about what we receive, and he begins to hammer what is required. And verse 1 of chapter 4 says, I urge you, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, to live or walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So Paul's sort of done after three chapters talking about the, 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 all that has been received. Now he wants to talk about what is required. Now, if you read the passage, and we have time to read some of it, the, the thing that's obvious because Paul says it to them, he reminds the church at Ephesus that they had a calling and they needed to live worthy of that calling. And that calling very specifically was that they should live as children of light and they should walk in love. That was their calling. That's what God had mandated them to do. But somehow along the way, they were in this place of just being somehow adrift. Somehow the, the mission and the mandate was not as prominent in their hearts, nor was it evidenced in their behavior like it should have been. And you sort of get a good, a good picture of that over in chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not what you learned in Christ. So Paul said, look, I get it. I understand where you're living. I know what's going on around you. I, I know the pull of society. I know the impact of culture. I know how the Gentiles are living, but listen, their minds are dark. They continue to live in ignorance. I can almost understand that for them, but that is not what you learned in Christ. And Paul is pulling them up short and asking them, isn't it time to do something different? And in this passage, Paul talks about three things, and we're going to look at them together. And you can just put these three points up. I do this for two reasons. One, I want to encourage you. So you'll know that I'm going to be very precise to finish on time, so you don't need to worry. If you've got your watch, hold on to it. I'm not going to disappoint you, I promise. Also, because pastor says it's $50 every 30 seconds I go over, so that was a little bit of a nudge he gave me just before I walked up here. I'm joking. He didn't say that. Stir passion. Now, what I want to do here is talk to you about how this needed to happen in the church at Ephesus. I want to tell you a story about how this happened in the heart of a young lady who I met a few weeks back in Helsinki, Finland. I'll tell you about the church of Ephesus, but let me set up my, my story of Tia. Back mid-August, I was preaching in Helsinki, which is where one of our new church plants is, is, is located. And it was just a, just a great little Sunday morning service there in this building. It seats about 100 people. And so kind of everyone who's in the room you see. And the service has started. We're doing the worship. And, I, and I, I'm kind of just looking over my shoulder and, and kind of just seeing what's in the room, kind of taking a little survey. I stand up to speak. 
And right in the middle door, it's the only choice they had, walked in this young couple. Now, Tia was this beautiful young lady. I couldn't, didn't know anything about her, but obviously she was a beautiful young lady standing next to a young guy who was obviously her boyfriend or husband. I didn't know anything at this point. They walk in the church and they sit down. The guy, who I later learned was Martin, was clear, and, and I confirmed this later, Martin is in church because Tia insisted. They're newlyweds. She drug him to church. She sat the whole time on the back row, elbow on his knee, looking at me like this. Obviously not interested. Tia, on the other hand, from the time I looked her in the eyes, I looked back five minutes later and Tia's crying. She cried the whole service. When it gets time to have altar call, Tia comes to the front. She doesn't come to the front and stand. She doesn't even come to the front and kneel at the altar. She comes to the front and falls on the floor in a heap and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Obviously, this was a big moment for Tia. After she had finished praying, what I learned was that Tia and her husband, Martin, were both children of Lutheran missionary parents. And they had gone to university and gotten away from mom and dad, and parents were still serving abroad, but they didn't go back. They fell in love, they got married, and they had been married about two years, but at that particular moment, just the night before, they had a roaring argument, so severe and so intense, that Martin suggested, you know what, maybe we just can't make it together. And Tia's little heart and her little world were crumbling. And Tia got it. If anything she understood, she knew, I have got to have some kind of moment with God and turn things around. And so what she learned and what she did is very much patterned by what the church at Ephesus did and a great pattern for us to observe ourselves. And here's what happened. When we go through moments of spiritual renewal, there are, or strategic renewal, there are three things that we want to do. The first is this. One, we, we make this beginning point of making a decision to stir passion. You know what passion is? Passion is the spiritual intensity I possess to have supernatural impact. That's passion. The spiritual intensity that I possess that allows me to have supernatural impact. And passion when it's stirred up and provoked and being promoted in our life, passion all by itself has this way of causing my heart to burn a little hotter. And it has this way of causing the priorities, the things that I want to live for, to suddenly begin to realign themselves and everything sort of starts coming back in place just because I stir passion. And when passion begins to wane and we begin to step back a bit, the, the, the end of the line, the, the most drastic point is when we risk being where the scriptures talk about, aware that we've lost our first love, aware that we've become lukewarm. That's, that's the end of the journey, but we don't get there all in one big step. It just begins by this slow leak, this, this small diminishing of passion. And before we know it, things that used to be in order aren't in order any longer. Priorities that be, used to be in the right place are no longer in the right place, and things that we should be living for somehow start escaping us. That's where the church at Ephesus found themselves. If you read this passage, it's, it's, it's almost shocking to think that this was the church of Jesus Christ, and yet they were engaged in participating in some stuff that's absolutely heartbreaking. And I don't suppose they got there all at once. I suppose it happened by being desensitized. 
Because Paul says, look, I understand that. I know what you're living in here. But listen, that is not what you learned. And you need to stir yourself again. And that idea of stirring passion is not, is not new for the church at Ephesus. If you follow the early ministry of Jesus, he often pulled himself away and often made statements to remind himself and his listeners. Remember when he looked at his, his disciples and says, my meat, my passion is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He repeated passion. I know what I'm supposed to live for. And I want you to know that I know what I'm supposed to live for. And he provoked his heart and he stirred his disciples by saying, listen, there's one way to live and I've got to stay on course. Remember when Paul wrote to a young, a young son in the Lord Timothy and said, Timothy, listen to me, son. Stir up the gift that is in you by the laying on of hands. Do not let, don't neglect the gift. Don't let anyone rob you of this. Don't let them ridicule you because you're young. You be a young man who preaches the word instant, in season, out of season. You know the passage. And he reminded Timothy to provoke and to stir up passion. Peter Lord is famous for saying this. and it's, I love this statement. Peter Lord says, it's just, it's just like this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Isn't that wonderful? I love simplicity. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's really as simple as you can possibly say it. And somehow Paul knew for the church at Ephesus, if you're going to really renew yourself strategically and experience spiritual renewal, it's got to begin by stirring passion. You yourself have to provoke and stir up your heart. You yourself have to pull back and say, am I living? Are the things I'm living for worth him dying for? Are my priorities right? Have I got things in order? Am I living by the stuff that I want to live by? Or is it somehow slipping away from me? And the only way to turn it around is to let God, via the Holy Spirit, touch your heart and stir passion. And your own heart will convince you, this is not where I'm supposed to be living. I have a feeling in the church at Ephesus, I have a feeling that some of the brothers said, hey guys, hold on, is it, are we really supposed to be doing this stuff? I mean, look what's going on among us. Is this really how we're supposed to be? I, I'm certain that along the way, someone tried to raise a voice. Someone tried to say something, but up to this point, it hadn't worked. So Paul said, listen, I'm talking to you. Make every effort. Do your very best. That's the language you find in chapter five. Make every effort. Do your very best to stir passion. And Tia understood it. When she came to that altar that morning, she knew something was happening deep within. Something was being stirred at the very core of her being. That's why she was crying. And Tia knew, I've got to get my life back in order. And the place it begins is walking from the back of the church to the front of the church in the eyes of a reluctant husband. And so no matter what you do or don't do, I have got to settle some things with God and to crumple on the floor and let God begin to do a work of renewal, strategic renewal in her heart. It needs to happen for us, brothers and sisters. And on days like today, when we're thinking about making a significant response, it begins by my saying, God, is my heart by priority and passion, is it lined up like it needs to be? Is my spiritual intensity at a level that's going to allow me to make a profound spiritual impact? Is my intensity powerful enough for my impact to be profound enough? That's the question we're asking. The second thing is here is that we have to shift perspective. 
And that means we have to sort of begin to change the way we see things and and make some very important choices. Now, in the text, if you read in chapter 4, just after I read you, what Paul recommends to the church at Ephesus is that they do two things immediately. One is that they begin to put off certain things that have begun to creep into their lives. Later, he repeats it. He says, listen, just get rid of all this stuff. Put it off. Get rid of it. Put it off kind of suggests it's a process. Get rid of it says, do it now. Take care of business. You've got to change your perspective. We've got to shift something here. Remember back in the days of the Brownsville Revival? There's a little little statement that came out of the revival that says, if you want what you've always had, then just keep doing what you've always done. But if you want things to change, then... If you want what you've always had, easy. Just keep doing what you've always done. But if you want things to change, then, and we have to begin to fill in the blank. What has to shift? What is it? Paul says to Richard Epstein, you guys, take a look. And he makes a long, I won't read it for you, but you go back and read it. He makes a long list, lest they were somehow misguided. Look, here's some stuff that has to happen now. Put this stuff off. Get rid of this stuff. Do it now. Shift your perspective. You've got to change the way you see things. You've got to clear out your vision, your spiritual vision, and make a willful, intentional step. Shift your perspective. Now, here's what's true in my life and yours. Sometimes... In shifting perspective, we have to make drastic changes, big, huge changes. And sometimes it's something in our life that others have tried to talk to us about. We've been a little hesitant. Sometimes we get offended. Sometimes we get a little bit defensive. But, but, but if in the presence of God, all by ourselves, we know that has got to change. I've allowed that attitude. I've allowed that habit. I've allowed that perspective to linger too long. I have got to hear the word of the Lord and put this off and get rid of it. Sometimes it's drastic. It's big stuff. It's massive stuff. Tia came to the altar and she poured her heart out and broke of repentance and Tia, Tia was saying to God, God, I know what I've allowed to happen in my life. I know what's crept in. I know what's robbing me. I know what I've got to put off. I know what I've got to get rid of. And she was doing business with God. Sometimes it's drastic and sometimes it's not drastic, but it's dramatic. Here's the difference. A drastic change is so huge and obvious it's become almost life controlling. A dramatic change is is a small little shift that has huge impact. It's not a big step, but a little step that's very dramatic. It's little, but it's wow. It makes huge impact. And for some of us, maybe even for most of us, by God's grace in our lives, we don't have drastic shifts to make, but we need to make some dramatic, strategic steps And say, God, before this lingers, God, before this thing takes root, God, before this thing becomes more significant, I'm going to deal with it now. Shift perspective. The last thing is that we have to shape plans. Now, the language in Ephesus, Paul not only says put off, get rid of, but he also reminds them, I want you to put on, and I want you to make the most of every opportunity. Paul's saying shape some new plans. Just don't get rid of stuff, but put some things on. Begin to intentionally add to your life some things that have gone missing and do your best to shape the kinds of plans that will allow you to make the most of every opportunity. 
And I know the end of the story. I know the, the, the testimony of this church in Ephesus. I know that this moment of confrontation led to something very good. And these guys who were creeping into a dark hole made some, some great new plans, and everything changed on the inside for them. I know that morning when Tia left that altar and the phone calls I've had to her pastor since then, Tia just didn't come to the altar that morning and have an emotional experience. Tia came to that altar, poured her heart, heart out to God, walked back to Martin, and Tia's heart had made this deep resolve, I'm making some new plans. And Tia is on a whole new journey. She's living in a whole new and living different kind of way. And her mama and her dad are thrilled. And Martin is feeling the pressure of a godly wife who's so good looking he can't live without her. But he's got this pressure now because Tia's turned on and living for the right stuff. Amazing. Shape some new plans. Not just put off, but put on. And make the most of every opportunity. So in these kinds of moments, when we're thinking about making a significant response to the world around us, and you know as a church, your commitment is not just to stuff happening across the sea. You're doing stuff across the street. You're seeking and asking God to be a presence that makes a significant contribution. We want to respond in a significant way to the need around us and to the doors that God opens. And in order for that to happen, God, we know that we've got to be ready not just to give financially, and we're going to do that. We've got to be ready to not just lay out the cash, but we've got to be ready to lay down our lives. And God, we want you to help us so that giving is an expression, our poured-out giving is an expression of a poured-out life, and we get it. Years ago, there was a guy named Chuck Brewster. Did you ever have Chuck here? Chuck was the leader of a men's ministry, the Assemblies of God men's ministry. I don't know if you guys ever heard him, but, but he said something I've never forgotten, and I just want to tell you a quick story about him. Chuck was in the Secret Service. His last job was to protect the vice president. So he said that when he went into training for that job, the first lesson that they attacked him on was making this decision that was instinctively against human nature because Chuck's job was to protect the vice president at any cost. So Chuck says, this is what they did. We're in a training situation, and all of a sudden we hear what we think is live fire going off, and instinctively we ducked. And our instructor screamed and yelled and grabbed our shirts and pulled us up. And let me tell you something, Brewster. When you hear fire, when this vice president is in danger, you do not find a small little place to make yourself small. But you stand up big and swell up like a toad, and you make yourself large. You make yourself so big that there's no chance anything's getting past you to the guy you're supposed to be protecting. The guy behind you is your job, Brewster, and you don't hide and make yourself small. No, sir, son, you stand up big and make yourself large. And Chuck used that story to challenge men. Quit hiding. Quit living small. Swell up like a toad, toad man, and live large and live big. And somehow, brothers and sisters, that's the thing I want to say to you this morning. In this world we're living in, where sin abounds, and there's far more things to concern us than to cause our hearts joy. Here's the truth. It is not the duty of the church to analyze the conditions of the world we're living in. It is not the duty of the church to articulate conclusions that we think we've observed 
The duty of the church is one. Accept the call. We're not analyzing conditions. We're not articulating conclusions. We stand in the presence of God and say yes or no. I accept the call. I have a little poem I carry in my Bible. The last verse of it says this, and I'm going to change it a bit. It says, give me a servant of God, just one. Who will live true to the vision that he sees. And I can rebuild your broken altars and bring nations to their knees. Just one. And I would say without any without any fear of taking it too far, that we could easily change that language and say, give me just one church, just one, who will live true to the vision that they see. And I can rebuild your broken altars and bring nations to their knees. We've got to live large. We've got to stir passion. We've got to shift our perspective. We've got to shape some new plans. And I pray God will begin to do that work in my heart and yours. And that somehow, through renewal, we can make a significant response in these days for God and his kingdom. Amen. Father, thank you this morning for everything that you are speaking. I am certain, Lord, that what we have heard, what you have spoken to us this morning, what we've heard from your word is not new. Undoubtedly, there are people in this house who will say, Terry, believe it or not, God has been speaking those thoughts or similar thoughts to me over the last days and weeks. Lord, we, we, we know it's true like that. We know what the word says. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We know you're speaking these kinds of messages to the hearts of your sons and daughters. And God, with all, of our, with all that is within us, we want to say yes to you. Yes to a poured out life and yes to an open hand. Lord, we want you to do great things in us so you can do, so you can do big things through us. And I pray this morning that you would, by your grace, by the whispering of your spirit, which, which goes to the, to the depth of us, I pray, God, that you would call us instinctively. May we know it's your voice, and may we say yes to you. For those who need to stir passion, whose priority and whose manner of living has become a bit diluted, God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would stir our hearts again. I pray, God, that we'd be courageous enough to to shift our perspective, to weed out of our lives some things that you have been speaking to us about. And further, God, that we would be so confident, that we would have a faith so confident that we would begin to shape new plans as well. God, thank you for what happened to the church at Ephesus. Thank you for what happened to the heart of Tia. And thank you for what will happen in our hearts as well. Do your work, Holy Spirit, I pray. This podcast has been a presentation of Faith Assembly, where our mission is to connect people with Christ and to experience life. Thank you for listening this week.